And you can take your time because I'm going to read Marion Sagan's Wikipedia page. <laughs> yes, Marion died in 1995, but she came here tonight just to make sure that we understood she wasn't dead. Um, I first started hearing Miriam's name in the early 70s because I was publishing in all the small press magazines at the time and so was she. So I'd see her name in every issue that I appeared in and in other magazines that I was subscribing to and I remember a small book put out by Samistat. Do you remember that? <laughs> so it's been a while that, yeah, we, I, we didn't actually know each other and I never actually remember getting something for seven stars from her but we were in the same crowd all the time having a good time so it was very fun for me to hear that she wanted to come here and read for us um, I want to tell you that she has a blog that she does quite often it's called Miriam's Well so if you type her name in Google you'll find Miriam's Well it's like one of the first two um, She's got a whole bunch of books. Her most recent books are Luminosity, Bluebeard's Castle, A Hundred Cups of Coffee, and a, a hundred other books. And actually, it's around 30-something 30 books. Um, lots of prizes. That's no surprise because she's a great poet. Uh, the cool thing is you can just Google her name and, and get this page yourself. So... I can read this for 45 minutes, or we can listen to Miriam for 45 minutes. So you let me know what you want, to, want me to do. Nice to be here. Nice to see you all. It's a treat to be in Joshua Tree. And it's a treat to be in um, the old-time small press world, where I was when I was young, and apparently it's where I am when I'm, when I'm old. Um, what I wanted to do is I did want to read a little bit from Troy and Needles, just one or two poems. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, good. I love this outdoor um, ramada because I've just been so um, happy to be part of the Troy and Needles issues and um, read everybody's work and essentially I feel like I understand it. This poem is called Out in the County. The pretty black lab named Lady was killed on this road, hit and run a delivery truck. At that exact moment, I was holding the baby in a comfy but slightly awkward position between my breastbone and my right shoulder. She has weakened me in my fuck you towards the world. I'm sad now if tiny sparrows fall or are pushed out of the nest, even though this happens every June. I feel badly even for the hideous black beetles that come out at night from the drains to die on the bathroom floor. I'm not pleased, not pleased at all, by my newfound compassion. Although I tell myself, Mir, you saw this con so many times before, you can do it again. I think not your typical grandmother poem, <laughs> but <laughs> typical for me. Um, I, it's funny, I haven't had the nerve. I, I wanted to show it to uh, the baby's mother, you know, my daughter, but I, I haven't had the nerve. Give me her address. Hmm? Give me her address on the other <laughs> Never. 
I've, I've been in a lot of deserts and a lot of desert towns and a lot of very beautiful places all over the Southwest. And um, this was written in Cottonwood, Arizona. I lick the rim of salt in a bar in Cottonwood, Arizona, or Gallup, New Mexico, as trickster in a banded hat watches college basketball, drinks water. Downtown among workers commemorating this or that world war, men bundled like garbage, sleep on benches, their human forms still discernible. You and I were babies once. So too bartender, front starter, derelicts. Maybe even those shooting stars turned meteor, fallen to crater. So I, I want to just say thank you to Troy and Needles. Um, <laughs> um, Bluebeard's Castle is about a bunch of different things, um, including my father, and I might read a little piece of memoir about him. He was kind of a gangster and kind of a communist and a lot of different things, but I think I'm going to just start off by reading a letter that I wrote to my younger self. Dear Mayor, just want to say to you, my younger self, that contrary to all your beliefs, you are totally fine. I know you hate yourself and are convinced you will never get out of New Jersey. Let me just say, you will see the northern lights over Greenland, San Francisco from the back of a motorcycle, and millions of acres of salt flats beneath the moon. I know you feel stifled. You want to know about death, and you can relax. You'll find out a lot about it, maybe more than you bargained for. Do not worry. You'll not spend the rest of your life lying on a mildewed couch on your mother's front porch reading D.H. Lawrence. You will find more fascinating things to read. You will know monks and poets and junkies. You will have a child, a foster daughter, seven nieces and nephews, and two husbands. You will be in the audience for a play at the state penitentiary performed by inmates. There will be drink, drugs, waking dreams, hallucinations, koans, and long, dull afternoons. Terrible things will happen to you. Violence, bereavement, fear for others. And you will not enjoy these things, but you will not be bored. Women's clothes are also going to get much better. Lots of flowy ethnic items and big dangling earrings that can be worn to work. You won't have to wear heels. Women will stop wearing girdles. There are going to be streaming movies and email and blogs instead of mimeo machines. Men will love you, not all men everywhere, but just enough for a lifetime of entertainment. Oh, please cheer up, sad and dumb younger self. Do not fall off a roof or overdose or die of swine flu. A lot of things are going to happen to you, and you will be comfortably dressed and not in New Jersey. Love the older you. <laughs> For a long time, I felt that you shouldn't combine poetry and prose. It was sort of like a personal rule I had, and then I just broke it in one fell swoop, and it just started to combine itself, you know. And there's poems along with the memoir in this, and a lot of the poems are about a kind of mystical, um, mythic set of characters, including Psyche from the Greek. Psyche, of course, means soul and means butterfly. And Psyche goes down into hell. You know, we think of all the heroes that go into hell, but there's only one person who goes into hell when they're pregnant, and that's Psyche. And she's trying to get back her husband, Cupid, and she's on this weird mission 
her very mean mother-in-law, who's Aphrodite, has said basically, get me like some cosmetics from the Queen of the Dead. So off she goes. And this is about that. So it's about Persephone, who's the Queen of the Dead, and Psyche, who's on her journey. Two chicks in hell. It's noisy like a bar. City street, distant siren, crowded and hot. I've come this way trying to get back my boyfriend. Aphrodite sent me to see you, Queen of the Dead, Persephone, the raped, the took, la chingada, as they say in Spanish. Look, I figured some things out, some not. Fire ants have kindly left the nest to help me sort a heap of beans, a sieve of grains, and long grass green reeds told me not to destroy myself. And a tower told me about a cave, a less traveled detour. I'll sit on the ground, won't eat much of anything, won't snort a line or bolt a shot or lick the rim for salt. You call me Psyche, that's my name. Offer me a mirror and a compact, something to powder my nose, smear my lips. It's beauty or it sleeps, refrain, as they say, let's not go down the alley of the fucked again. You have to stay, you married in, I get to go, back up to sunlight. I'm pregnant, can't you see? I'll keep this baby, Cupid's kid, tattoo upon this broken heart, its lid. Fortuna, my eyes full of salt. Where is the mirror that remembers? There is no ointment to salve time. Once you loved me, I'm sure of it. You love me still, I'm sure of that also. If the stars chart a course, or you chart a course by the stars, open your hand, no palm reader knows braille. What I saw, but didn't understand, what I didn't see, and everything hidden that no dove or raven found in me. You know, sometimes you write something and then you understand it many years later. And I realized, you know, what I saw but didn't understand. So much of childhood and so much of life is like that. And then sort of the attempt to understand it in large part through writing. I want to read you just a piece of flash fiction that's really about my relationship with my father. And it's about the early 70s and how annoying your friends always are. Um, it's a short piece, but a little bit um, narrative. It's called Acid, 1971. The click, click, click of the legal tap on the phone in my father's house confronted us every time we picked up the receiver. It drove my friends, a bunch of small-time drug dealers, crazy, although it was not aimed at them. It was aimed at my father because this was the height of the war in Vietnam and the president of a peace organization of which my father was treasurer had gone to visit Hanoi. Click, click, click. My father was a happy man. The most powerful government in the world was concerned with him. He was arrested, Mirandized, released over a matter of cash at a rally. His name appeared on Nixon's enemies list. He was audited on his taxes straight through until the first year of Carter's administration. Click, click. What the fuck is that? asked Joey Patmos. He was my friend, my junior year in high school. Skinny, dirty blonde, wrapped in an old army jacket, Greek, from two towns over. Joey announced that he was coming over and I tried to dissuade him. It was dinner time and he sounded high. 
I wasn't much of a druggie myself. The sight of a close friend's little brother hurling himself through a plate glass window, tripping at a party had been enough to reinforce my natural caution, but I could talk you down. My mother, despite the disintegration of civilization around her, still believed in dinner. She was terrified, though, that our father's activities would lead to the kidnapping of one of my younger siblings. Look, she said desperately to my father, pointing to an article in the New York Times in which he was described as a millionaire opposed to the war. They say millionaire. You know what that means? Some lunatic will go and kidnap the kids for money. The Lindbergh baby was as clear in my mother's imagination as if it were yesterday. My father paid no attention. I barely tucked into a nice chicken breast with rice and broccoli when Joey arrived, and I hustled him upstairs to my room. He was in a very bad part of his trip, the non-blissy, paranoid part that appeared also to be just the start. He slumped down to the foot of my bed, rapidly opening and closing his eyes. It had been raining and his hair was matted. I kept him stashed in the bedroom while doing homework, fighting with my sister, even eventually brushing my teeth. Every so often, Joey said, I'm going to die. And I said, no, you're not. It was a school night, and I had to get rid of him. Click, click, click. I called a friend of ours who lived around the block, hustled Joey Patmos out into the rain. I watched him walk away. I was as alone in the world as if I was on an ice floe. Time passes. 34 years later, I am sitting in my backyard on a summer's day with my father. My daughter is a teenager, and she's been drifting in and out all weekend with her friends. A tall boy on a bicycle comes over. He is introduced, shakes my father's hand, and disappears into my daughter's room. My father looks pained, perhaps, I think, by the boy behind closed doors. Remember when you were that age, says my father. Yes, I say, which is quite true. And they arrested me that time and read me my Miranda rights? He looks happy all over again. Mom was scared, I say. Nothing was going to happen, he says. It wasn't like McCarthyism. I nod. That time that Joey Patmos came over, he says, that evening, I am completely startled. You remember that? He was on LSD, wasn't he? Says my father, some kind of drugs? Yes, he certainly was. I'm sorry, says my father. I wanted to help you, but I had no idea how. So I just didn't say anything. I listened to the click that is sometimes in my brain, but it is silent. New Jersey. Why are you calling? My father asks. It is the afternoon of September 11th. My father lives 12 minutes from New York City. If there is no traffic, I have spent hours dialing and redialing his number, and finally, miraculously, the circuits don't overload and put me through. Why are you calling? He asks. Because I stumble and surprise, you know, the bombing, the towers are down. I'm in New Jersey, says my father. That is Manhattan. I am in New Jersey. I also was once in New Jersey, was raised there, a place of vendetta, sexual warfare, and imminent disaster. I have been waiting for something to happen to New Jersey ever since I was a child, since the Cuban Missile Crisis. When I was 16 years old, I thought that the apocalypse had arrived. I was lying in bed, as I was wont to do, feet on my pillow, head by the foot end, my window faced south. And there I saw a pink mushroom cloud on the horizon, 
swell to its perfect shape. I rushed across the hall to my parents' bedroom, disturbing them. I saw a mushroom cloud, I shouted. You always exaggerate, my mother said. Then the shockwave hit the house, breaking two windows. It was not the Russians, but a refinery blown sky high in an industrial town near Elizabeth. I have always exaggerated. Once in a nice family-style fish restaurant, I sat facing the water when I saw fireworks explode over the marina. Look, I told everybody, look, turn around, fireworks. No one turned to look. No one believed me. No one cared what I saw. I must be exaggerating. Eventually, my first husband, the only person at the table who had not known me as a child, turned. It was Bastille Day, and he saw golden flowers unfolding, both reflected in and dissolving over the water. I'll read the... Thank you. You know, it's good. You get a little revenge from being a writer, right? You know what I mean? If I told you, oh, look, I see fireworks, half of you might turn. <laughs> but one thing, although the, the book is about, really, it's a pretty complicated relationship I had with my dad, one thing that my father really gave me was a love of the American West, and particularly Arizona, but really all of the Four Corners and um, California. And so the last poem in this book is called Island in the Sky, and it's about the Colorado Plateau. Rim sandstone, once an ancient shore, now red rock cliffs, calve colossi, pharaohs, temples, colonnades. To imagine the sea here is to dream. Great swaths of desert varnish, eons paintbrush, an arch frame vastness. Air, ledge, fall, desert, on and on. Fossil layer preserves, ripple marks, impression of raindrops. To hear the sea is to know you are asleep. Aperture, lacuna, sky blue hole, where rock shale was tide flats and salt cracks your lips. And to rub the sand from your eyelids is to awake. So I want to talk a little bit about um, my book, A Hundred Cups of Coffee, and read you a few. Um, I thought I'd read sort of like the most confessional parts I could find, you know, why not? And some poems as well. I set out, uh, I don't know why I did this, but I set out to drink a hundred cups of coffee and to write a hundred times. And I didn't have a strict timeline, and the coffee's not very good. Um, people got mad, you know, you know, when you write, you wonder, oh, did I say something terrible about somebody? Did I tell somebody's secret? Nobody cared about that. All I cared about was that I was drinking this bad um, instant coffee, and that it wasn't, <laughs> see, right, you're already suffering. <laughs> so I received negative feedback about my beverage choice, but it's not really about coffee. It's really about um, kind of settling down and trying to um, track the present moment. So in the two years of writing the book, I didn't really know how long it would take. My mom died, uh, Donald Trump was elected, and all kinds of other things happened. So it was that scary thing of setting out to observe and not knowing what would happen, right? Whatever happened kind of came into the book. So.
it's fun for me because the cups all have numbers. So this is cup number 86. And it's on the Washington to Denver flight. And the little note says it's gross airplane coffee. It is too hot with instant creamer and a plastic stirrer. The monk in a saffron robe in seat 39F sips tea from a paper cup high above the clouds. He seems different than you or me, but the years have taught me the checkout lady at the grocery store knows as much as he does, if not more. So I did check, I did check whether it was okay for, I wanna read about a piece about um, this guy that I just loved so much when I was 20, in my 20s, and then I wanna read a piece about my husband, Rich. So these are my super confessional pieces, you know. You don't need to hear about the beauty of the Chihuahuan Desert, really, right now. I think you need to hear about love. <laughs> One thing I was thinking about, I don't know if you all are familiar with the poet Joanne Kiger, Bellina's poet, San Francisco Renaissance poet, and she died recently, but she has a, a poem that says, starts and says, the best thing about the past is that it's over. <laughs> and of course, you know, well, like in a, what you did as the benediction, the, the past is never really over for us as people or us as writers, but it recedes. This is cup number 35, and I believe that all, the only thing I know about what I was drinking is it's decaf. Do you ever stop loving someone? I had lunch with W who broke my heart. We were unofficially engaged and he dumped me. Too cute for me, too handsome, a runaround to Croatia, and upon reflection, headed for a much more conventional life than I was. How I loved him. He was hilarious yet sad and tortured, competent yet a drinker, sociable yet withdrawn, seductive but not that interested in intimacy. He was perfect, bad, bad, bad. Now he's a very handsome, funny, rich man of 62 with a worrisome diagnosis. A wife he loves, a lovely garden. We haven't seen each other in over a dozen years. Actually, in 32 years, we've seen each other three times. For so long, he was a hallmark of lost love, and then, poof, the emotion that seemed to linger like the half-life of uranium turned out to be gone, inaccessible. The first thing he said to me today was, you look beautiful than discussing his views on death. I'm just going to get some second all and watch it down. A nice lunch, an ordinary discussion of the national parks of Utah. Then we're on the porch smoking pot like it's going out of style. I'm high as can be and he's making me laugh and I feel how emotion fades, yet lingers like a scent. Dried lavender folded away in a lace tablecloth. It's strange because so much evokes passion in me. And this was just gentle and out of remove. He said, Miriam, you are the most existential person I ever met, and I can only stand it in small doses. <laughs> then he almost apologized, said something about being immature and disrespecting women, and I said something accepting about not being hard on himself as he'd been a bad boyfriend, but then obviously settled down. And I felt his own nature was obscure to him in a way mine most usually is not to me and thought about how I'd had two husbands since him, so no wonder he'd fade. And yet, I never expected he would. 
Then they drove me back, and I realized, once again, I'm stoned and riding shotgun to W, driving high. And he said, better hold on to something, took a curve very fast. And I, who should know better, just kept laughing. So that's, I guess, I, I don't, I mean, is that revenge? I don't know, <laughs> you know. But, um, but it's interesting when you set out to work a grid where you're working with time, you're also working with memory. Um, I think it's Annie Dillard's book, um, Holy the Firm, where she goes out for seven days, she's going to be quiet and a little plane falls out of the sky, and the people in her, they're not killed, but it starts this whole philosophical investigation on her part that, that she wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so I did check, I did check with my husband Rich if it was okay to read this piece. Now, because these are a hundred, you know, sort of diary entries, people think that they're very confessional, and, and they are pretty confessional, but also they were edited. I just want to say in my own defense, right, things were taken out. And um, actually, a few, quite a few things were taken out of this, this piece, although it is indeed about marital, marital. <laughs> it's cup number 69, Socorro's. Um, in Hernandez, New Mexico, nicely brewed cafe coffee. Italianate figures of girls carrying flower bowls wrapped in red sparkle gauze. The flowers are fake. It's Rich's birthday. We're headed to Ojo Caliente to soak. Big fight with him yesterday. I was so mad, I hit the wall with my fist and said, fuck you. What was the fight about? On the wall, a magnet reading, God loves you and so do I. On the cash register, shit happens. <laughs> the sign, Spanish food and pizza. A guy comes in and returns a slow cooker. Ready whip and part of a chocolate cake in the glass case. What were we fighting about? The same thing we've been fighting about for two decades or more. How close are we? Who decides our differences, our similarities? Some couples I know don't quite seem married despite the years, and some seem like twins, not for me, and some with weird or scary agreements that look like prison, or with equally odd arrangements that bring happiness and contentment. I don't know if our fighting is a flip side of passion. We're just really close. And like our old, much-missed cats, Felina and Orfeo, if we get too close, or the wrong kind of close, we try to bite each other's ears off. <laughs> Thank you for understanding that, I hope. Um, you know, it's, part of me wants to you know, bring you a little bit of New Mexico, and part of me thinks, well, it's similar enough here that you don't need a little bit of New Mexico. But I'm going to read you the last cup, which is very short, which is about Tau Scourge and just crossing the Rio Grande from one part to the other. Um, so I'll tell you something about this. I, I thought I'd written 100 cups, right? And I'm counting every couple days, and I'm numbering it. And when I, I wrote the last one, and I was so happy, and then I realized it was just 99. So it would seem really dumb, 99 cups of coffee. It just has no ring to it, as far as I'm concerned. And so what I did was I, I had to swap it out and do cup 100 as the introduction. So that's okay, it worked out, I mean, I'm pleased enough. Cup 99, I apologize for this part. 
two-day-old coffee microwaved, cow scourge crossing west, a very thin crescent sliver of new moon hanging over Carson. What you can't see in darkness, the old schoolhouse, the pile of neatly stacked wood. What you can hear, the rush of night's wings around the car, a sensation of emptiness beneath the wheels, abyss. going to read a handful of poems to close, but um, this indeed is a newish book, and I wrote a lot about the eclipse of the sun that occurred two years ago. Who, anybody here see it? Yeah, okay. I just, I got very excited, and I wrote, I don't know, probably a 50 poems about the eclipse of the sun, and then I had to throw out a lot of them, but some of them are functional. So I'll just read you a few of these and maybe close with um, a poem or two from uh, Choi and Needles. Astronomers call the eclipse a cosmic coincidence. How our satellite can blot out the star of our sun, I've held my thumb up to cover many things I didn't want to see. Is it coincidence? I hold you in my arms in this bed, held you long ago, and always will. You turn away from the sun to count the cars on the freight train. We've been counting for days. Something observable, moving like booty nature across the northern plains. The waitress seems confused about the cosmos. Me too. <laughs> the waitress seems confused about the cosmos. She says she was up on the roof with her boyfriend and did not see the eclipse, but then describes how everything went dark and a star hung in the sky, except her boyfriend said it wasn't a star, it was a, a planet. We, can feel, we feel confused because this restaurant indeed was in the path of totality. And what else could she have seen? Although it makes me sad that this single mom doesn't know the morning star the evening star is the goddess of love. We're alone again in the car, driving through basin land, and not Viejo, getting any younger. In the dazzling light of late afternoon, east of the sun and west of the moon. How many times have I walked across a field in America, leaving a green place behind, rows of cabbages and tiger lilies, purslane you might eat, but only very new, blue chicory. Goodbye to you I loved, and you I didn't. Back to the city, and a million pairs of shoes, and a million pairs of strangers' eyes. In this moment, I might be 12 or 60, I promise myself I'll return, I'll make it right. Next time, I'll love all of you. Blue Chicory. This poem was written in Iceland. It's called The Book of Darkness. Book of Darkness must turn the pages on the book of light. 
Arctic fox with its small triangle face and snout crosses the field. The mouse's velvet ears listen for a dropped crumb and the needle and the pin and the teaspoon watch for the fisherman who may or may not return. And the black capped gull flies over the red roofed town with a mouse in its claws and light must close the cover on darkness. Also from Iceland, compass. The four directions stood naked to the wind. The north spoke of a magnetic truth, the south of storms, the west of reconciliation, the east of how the cervix of light dilates and everything rises. just read another poem or two from uh, Choya and then if you want to come and trade me something for a book or ask for one um, I'd be happy to say hello it was just very nice to be here too. it was nice to be with the open reading and um, just to like get a little feeling about Joshua Tree right it's, it's a big treat um, this poem is tied it is very similar to the one I just read although written in a very different place years later. And it's, it was written in Jerome, Arizona. At the edge of Jerome, copper mining town turned tourist, all verticals, poplar trees by the abandoned mansion and red globes outside former bordellos, now selling lingerie and school jewelry. A young woman stands in the darkness on the road's shoulder and takes a picture of the full moon on her cell phone. And if you had any question about what direction things rise in, now you know. This is a poem that has a lot of water in it. It's not about the desert at all. It's about Michigan's upper um, peninsula. So I think I'll read that, and then I'm going to read one about a poem about San Francisco, which just somehow feels right. I mean, I haven't always lived in the desert. You know, I was born on the Atlantic, and I lived on the Pacific. Literal, meaning by the lake. At dusk, we go down to the lake. Come upon a woman bathing, no goddess naked, almost old and plump in two-piece suit, but like the huntress, surrounded by three black dogs who splash friendly, if we are. Absent-mindedly, you toss a stick into the water, and one of the labs dashes to retrieve it. We notice how the level is rising out of the lake bowl and starting to flood the shore. I walk over pebbles, look at glaciers detritus, try to draw the spots and speckles in my mind's eye, each rock like a smoothed, dented fractal of the shoreline. When we turn back, they're gone, back in the truck, no doubt, or maybe just vanished into last light on the lake surface. Think about all the times you went somewhere in your life and you saw something that you, you saw but did not understand. Why was, this why was this lady in the lake? Did she go every day? Did she just go once so that I could write a poem about her? Um, it's, it's just great. I mean, you know, I just think that Poetry doubles your life. 
expectancy. <laughs> for every minute, for every minute that you're sort of just kind of kicking around, you had that another moment in poetry. So really, you know, I'm 130 or something like that. This is a poem about being very young. Young, kind of stupid, but on the way to wisdom. How does that sound? And I'm going to close with it. And thank you for publishing these poems. The hem of my only skirt, purple, brushes my ankles. Neglected garden, lily-shaped snails and snail-shaped lilies. I slide out of my shell, my petals unswirl in this neighborhood of hills and lovers. I'm alone in the morning, go to Chinatown to sit on a stool, watch the cook fry me a green onion pancake, certainly not the stool or the counter. Remember my ankles, whipped in the breeze of myself like a kiss, how threshold after threshold seemed to open in sheer air, earthquake or not, a kind of suffering I could call happiness. Thank you. Have you ever wondered why people live in the desert? I'm Dawn Davis, and I host Desert Lady Diaries podcast. It's a weekly conversation with women who found their home in the Mojave Desert. Each week, I talk to women who were either born and raised in the desert or felt called to come here and what the desert means to them. You can learn more about the podcast and listen at DesertLadyDiaries.com. Miriam says she's happy to answer questions if you have any. Also, come up and look at her books. Um, did, are there any public questions first? Nope. All right. That's good. So you can come ask all the private questions. Okay. Science fiction stories and interviews blasting straight out of the Mojave Desert and beyond. Space Cowboy Books presents... Simultaneous Times Podcast, free to stream on your favorite podcast player. Find out more at spacecowboybooks.com and be sure to visit our store in Joshua Tree, California.